0: Welcome back. It's hot. I'm tired. I'm busy. I'm f- joined by three other very busy men. It's another episode of Covered with the Utah FOP, and I'm happy to be here. I'm Ian Adams. I'm your executive director. I'm joined by Brent Jex, our president, Brett Rawson, El Hefe, Chief Legal Counsel, JD Man. Esquire, the third.
1: <laughs> wow. The and third.
0: JC Holt. Longtime member of the Utah law enforcement community, long-time first time FOP caller. member, first-time caller. First-time caller. <laughs> Welcome, yeah. sir. Thank you. Welcome back for another episode of Covered JC. I do appreciate you having having you here. I appreciate the sort of calm uh, approach you can take to some of these issues that Jex and I just lose our minds over. It's a, We need an adult in the room, <laughs> as usual. Jex is going to join us for the first well, half of the episode, I think, today Yeah. before he gets on to some other stuff. So uh, how
2: many minutes do I have before I can piss him off Seventeen. try, try to get him to leave? No, no, no. The, the, the challenge point is, is in
0: three minutes. Yeah. You, well, you want to nail it right at like the 15-minute mark. So he has to leave before he can respond appropriately. Okay. He just sounds terrible. Okay. That
2: gives me a measure <laughs> uh, to well know. Yeah. Well so.
0: <laughs> Today's uh, episode, we want to talk a lot about uh, some of the political and policy implications of uh, June's mm-hmm. protests, police, some of the national conversations that are taking place, uh, a lot of these do affect Utah officers, and the Utah FOP specifically. I know, Jax, you and I are pretty much constantly on call with certain media outlets to discuss the implications of this and sort of the officer voice and view on a lot of these uh, proposals. Uh, very specifically, just to recap so people understand where we're coming from, last week, I believe it was last week, it may have been the week before, uh, Sim Gill, the Salt Lake County District Attorney, finally issued a quick ruling uh, on the uh, May shooting. Uh, in Salt Lake City, of a suspect right. who had just committed two armed robberies on parole for or on probate, felony probation for armed robbery, carrying a gun, um, pointing the gun, pointing him. the gun, dropping the gun, picking it up because he wanted to use the gun more than he wanted to get away. And to his credit, Simgill saw through uh, some of the nonsense in the media about it and ruled yep. that a justified shooting. In response, the D- Salt Lake District Attorney building became the target of protesters. Um, and in the wake of that, Simgill issued a 22-point uh, potential reform plan talking about different ways that, that policing or the rules around policing could somehow be maneuvered into place where I guess the idea is that he could have ruled it unjustified. I wasn't quite clear on that.
1: Well, it seemed to be that uh, he said, these are all the things that are standing in my way. Right. You know, publicity, you know. Uh, transparency. Judicial oversight, transparency. <laughs> Uh, definition of, of legal context that was put in action by the Supreme Court. You know, they really ought to review those in, uh, in law school. You know, I don't know if that's... Ross, can you get that taken care of yeah, for us? Yeah, we'll you know, start, can start you looking submit at the a, Constitution. <laughs> think it's time. You know, just require that you have to you have to read it. I, I
0: think know? that they ought to take into account Supreme Court decisions. I mean, I'm, I'm going out on a limb here. I, I think that under our system, the Supreme Court ought to have a say a little bit in this. That's I, a good idea. One of the... Ross, and this is going to be your wheelhouse big time. Oh, boy. One of the points uh, in this memo that I just found mind-boggling was that... Sim, or sorry, District Attorney Gill would like to be able to investigate and bring evidence in front of a grand jury as opposed to a preliminary hearing. Now, why might that be? Could could you explain for the members of our audience maybe the difference between these two um, and why that might be?
3: Well, first of all, there is nothing in the state of Utah precluding him from doing that already. There is a process that exists. The court is the gatekeeper on that, and and uh, the biggest difference is that it's sealed. It's not public. It's right. one-sided. There's no opportunity for... Defense to show up and put their case on as you get in a preliminary hearing. It's Can you indict a, a ham sandwich? <laughs> that's the saying. Okay. It, is that you know? It, it's easier to. To get an indictment, um, you know, and, and if he has the goods, then then by so what, all means. what's the go. Pr- what what happens in a grand jury? What is that? Well, the, the most grand, Utah uh, cops aren't aware because yeah. we don't operate in that system. The very system often. exists in Utah, like I said, um, but it's just not used very often. So mm-hmm. any any prosecutor, frankly, any person can. Can uh, petition a grand jury to to look at uh, yeah to look at an issue and and there's a process the court is the gatekeeper so the court determines what goes you know if, if something in fairness can go before a grand jury in Utah but there's nothing stopping uh, you know the prosecutor from from making his, making his pitch to that gatekeeper that, that something should go before the grand jury. So what happens is a grand jury is just a group of individuals that are of sound mind over the age of, um, you know, they have to be 18 or older. It's selected primarily by the court. I mean, these are people that the judge, you know, uh, sometimes handpicks to go on this grand jury. And the, and the prosecutors go in, they have subpoena power, they can put on they they can and do put on evidence, uh, testimony of of witnesses. Everything is sealed, so it is hush hush. There are, you know, strong rules that govern uh, what can and can't be said about those grand jury proceedings. And usually, there's nothing that's said about those proceedings. They're done in secrecy, and then an announcement is made as to whether or not indictments are handed down. Yeah, but the media would have access to all that, right? Uh, not initially, I mean, no. No, initially, oh, so the, that's all. The media all. would be kept in the dark. But surely tab. a defense yeah. attorney would be able to nope. be
0: there representing the client. No, sir. Well, no. But, but the media fights But the for public could show up and really? listen no. to the testimony. No. no, no, Well, now, wait a minute. <laughs> I thought for the last two decades I've been involved in uh, policing, uh, transparency has been a key value that we continue to bring towards the criminal justice system in order to enhance community trust in its processes and outcomes
3: well that sounds that sounds novel let's try that yeah, yeah so why
0: why then i'm trying to think jex why would a district attorney want to remove all transparency ooh, ooh, and access
1: ooh, ooh, ooh. yeah know, go ahead go ahead your okay. hands up you don't have to raise your hand in here it's just us go ahead. Oh, okay thanks because he doesn't have the goods he can't even make a probable cause case Mm-hmm. Which, but we don't which, have any. Do we have any examples? Well, what,
0: possible. Oh, any possible examples
1: where we, we only have three in the FOP, four four in the FOP, where where that's been defeated. Do we have any him.
0: examples where maybe? But it could Case be was brought in front of a preliminary hearing and, and tossed and tossed very even, publicly and embarrassingly for a Salt Lake County District yeah, Attorney. A couple
1: of times. Oh, a couple of times. Were there any where right. he withheld evidence oh, and violated? There's some the allegations that,
0: around that. I. I think, just to clear the sarcasm out of the room because I'm choking a bit on it, I think, yes, that the district attorney is tired of getting his ass handed to him, frankly, by FOP attorneys in preliminary hearings, where he has claimed in the media for months in advance or even a year in advance about how solid his case is, and then he the very first time he puts that evidence in front of a neutral trier of law, finder of fact in that case, that the judge tosses it immediately without even ever hearing from a defense attorney's, or the client's witnesses. Only the state's witnesses, and it gets tossed. No, that, my friends, is a very, very low bar. He couldn't even indict a ham sandwich. Especially
1: where one of the key points that he routinely dribbled out through that proposal was, that you know the the equality of justice you know the the uh, equal justice under the law right now i'm like you've got now i know that there there are cops out there listening just furious i know there are victims out there furious that they wouldn't prosecute something that they clearly had the probable cause standard right you know they clearly if i mean arguments of that they had the proof beyond reasonable doubt that the case was not taken by the by the DA's office, right? And so this whole every time he utters equal justice under the law, I, I, I laugh but angrily. Well, and just
0: equal justice should not is not is not. I, I'm not even going to use the normative should. It is not a zero sum game, Brett. Like, you can enhance justice in this system for everybody at the same time. It goes back a couple episodes ago. I mentioned I will never personally push for a policy that's only good for cops but bad for the community, right? Yeah. That's not how right. this game works. The You enhance everybody's value of the criminal justice system, everybody's um, valuation of it, rather, when you increase the transparency and the due process for those involved. And there's nothing... There's no gain for the overall system by reducing the rights of officers or trying to hide those processes behind the the curtain of secrecy in a grand jury room. And to me, that's just utterly ridiculous and runs counter to everything I value in making progress in in, in our system.
1: Well, and here's the thing is you've got, okay, so grand juries, it's there for, for a reason, right? You know, the complexity of a case being so, you know, I could think of, a, uh, a massive government corruption element or things like that where the normal process just clearly wouldn't work not it doesn't work because you don't have the goods or because you haven't established that legal standard right but there is a there is a purpose for that sure but one of the things that it's not just the the officers involved that are waiting for that judgment i mean you've got the you got the dead guy's family right. that's waiting for answers you've got uh the policing community really looking for answers because that gears a lot of the way that agencies do actions. I mean, there were task forces, at least at the time that I retired, there were task forces throughout the state that said, do not go to Salt Lake County. If you want to go to Salt Lake County just for surveillance, go ahead, but do not take any takedowns. We're not going to run the risk of mm-hmm. of having a significant use of force and having that fall under under the Solid County DA.
0: Well, there, there's a distinct lack of trust. It's existed for years. Um, this proposal certainly didn't help that relationship. Um, you and I and I, I actually saw a great story out of um, the um, Standard. Standard up in. Ogden. Uh, yeah, uh, with Troy Rollins on there, the the county attorney up there, who also just like took a look at those 22 points and was baffled as to how that would enhance the system. So. JC, have you talked to officers about what's going on lately, how they're kind of, what What are the line guys saying?
2: You know, it's, uh, there's some tension in the air, I guess would be the way I would define it. People, uh, my biggest fear is a, as a leader in the agency where I work with, the shift of people that I work with is that they will, I, I worry about inaction. I worry about officers questioning decision-making processes that they've been trained on because of, possible ramifications after such to me you know we start the same the same way every shift as i emphasize to the officers that i work with the importance that we all stay safe and that we go home and that we keep others safe as the law mandates and when you have a process that is is struggling or frustrated in in carrying out the justice of that it creates uncertainty it creates tension and it affects policing as a whole. I mean, we live in such an interesting day and age where I think one of the things that really fuels a lot of this is is body camera footage, of course. And, you know, everybody asks me in, in private circles, you know, are things getting more violent out there? And I, I can say that I, I don't believe that they are. I don't believe that it's any more violent than it was when I started 20 years ago. The difference is you can see it now. Everybody can see it. You can YouTube it, you can watch it. What it lacks is context. Right. And when we, when we release body camera footage to the public, which there, there's a time and a place to do that after the case has been adjudicated, in my opinion, and not before, because you don't have the context it, it's you're throwing that out there without the context and people are now looking at something through their lens their their perspective which may not have the expertise level needed in order to break down that situation and see what it is and so this is uh this is a huge issue in in Salt Lake County right now with the way officers are are out and working and and it's a problem that needs resolve in my opinion we need to we need to come to the table and as uh as one of our attorneys so eloquently stated in his Tribune article you know, a week or two back, Nathan Evershed, uh, he talked about this. He talked about due process. He talked about context and things like that. And really, we, we need to keep that. The the grand jury thing, as I listen to this talk, it it's scary. We, we lose some of that. We lose the transparency. We lose context. It becomes now a, a closed-door thing. And I don't know, we... we it's it's disappointing to me to see leaders, uh, elected officials, that jump on bandwagons before proper context is laid out, and it, it really sets up a Amen. difficult situation for those that are out policing our streets because it's uh, the the shooting that you mentioned, Ian. You know there was a lot of there was a lot of talk from elected officials that came out and condemned things and said things without context, and yes. it was it made it it made the whole case super difficult. And it fouled up the due process for everybody involved. And, right. and just like you said, there, there are more people to think about than just law enforcement here. I mean, what about the, what about the family members affected by this? You know, what about the, the person who was shot by police? How, how does their family feel about this being plastered all over the place before they have any context? It's,
0: uh, well, and I worry that, they're, that we, these elected officials, when they do that, when there were city council members that were calling that shooting unlawful, these are trained attorneys these city council members are attorneys they went to law school and they come out within hours and call it an unlawful shooting and i believe that raises the the expectation within the family members of that of that person who was shot the
3: family members the public everybody
0: everybody gets their expectations raised because they value the opinions of these for some reason politicians who are doing this and then once the process takes place, I mean, those of us who are watching that take place, who have watched a lot of shooting investigations go through and understand sort of the legal constraints around shootings, are
3: like, ah, oh, that looks like it's going to be an okay shooting legally. Well, um, and, and, and to Sims' credit, you know, he, he got that one right. right. Yeah, he and gets there, right. And, you know, because that's what the law requires. Exactly. And his whole point with his, you know, his 22 points of You Light. Yeah, or whatever. Save my job. You know, is that he he wants different tools so that it makes it easier for him to, you know, go after the cops. Right. But the law is very clear, and those officers uh, were able to defend themselves. (laughs) Uh, They they did what they were supposed to do, how they were trained to react in circumstances. They showed a great deal of uh, restraint to that point where they couldn't any longer – you know, hold back um, and take any further risk to themselves or their partners. And they articulated the risks very well to the
0: to the rest of the public. This was not uh, this was not going to be the sort of incident that just everybody walks away with no harm done. No, I right? mean we,
2: we we talked about that. I mean before you know before we started recording it, it's we live in a day and age where I think that it's starting to get very confusing on what the public wants from their police officers. Yeah, I mean, do we let an armed individual who has just uh, pointed a gun at people, who, who has a history of violence, do we let that person continue to run away with that gun, who's already held that gun to people that day? You know, he, he rounds the next corner and shoots somebody, and now the officers are dealing with, why didn't you take action? Right. They take action, they face criticism for that as well. I mean, it just goes to show that some of these situations that our cops are placed in every day on the streets, it just unimaginable. It, it's these decisions are, are are super difficult, and I think that we expect what what I'm hearing that we expect is is perfect model behavior every single time from human beings, and it, that just has not been my experience. I mean, when we introduce emotion and everything, I mean backgrounds, cultures, you you name it, we're going to have certain. Circumstances that just we can attribute to human characteristics, and uh, it's it's tough. We our officers are are highly trained. They they do very well most of the time, if not all the time. And again, it, it's context. My I have I have just worked tirelessly within my social groups to try to educate folks on what cops do. You know, I've invited people come ride in a cop car for a night. You know, look at some of these complex situations that our officers are thrown in and and when you don't have the backing or you feel that you don't have the backing and you're facing those decisions you start to question you start to wonder should i stay in this job should i find something else to do Let uh, you know hit on
1: that real quick because i i think there's a what what jc's hit on is absolutely true you know it's that the the context that we take things in and i look at I look at what we're dealing with on the street on, you know, everybody, you know, it seems to be, you know, very black and white on, on, well, it said, you know, and I want this little thing. Here's the problem is that most cops in the communities that we serve have that wish and that desire, but, and they're able, well, we were able to do that under discretion. You know, we were able to take that totality of everything and go, okay, you know what, given the circumstance and everything, okay, I can see that, it you know, it's not a you know whatever that is and able to make that discretion what's happened is that we've seen the the restriction of discretion that agencies have placed on the officers and that has now spilled out into the public quite frankly mm-hmm. you know the the officers that are that can't make basic decisions on whether to to book somebody for something that they feel like they would like to release them on a citation and there are agencies with with policies that say no you shall book you know no And so I, uh, you're talking about sort of the, the, the reduction of discretion over the years, the reduction of discretion and how that, how that comes into play, because I mean, there, there's not a, well, there are a few, but take domestics Mm -hmm. and JC, I mean, you were, you know, Mr. Mr. Domestic extraordinaire. Um,
2: that's what we called you when you were Just listening. at work, yeah. not at, you, not you at home. You didn't see it, but we put it, on, <laughs> we put it on your
1: uh, yeah. on the back of your, just your as, shirt.
2: Just as long as we know that's a work title. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, but I have no see. domestic issues <laughs> in my home at all. That's like the third time <laughs> He's he said that. We're yeah. good. Yeah. No, yeah. we have to look yeah. Yeah. into that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We acknowledge
1: JC is very obedient at
2: home. His
0: wife
1: has had no complaints. He listens every time. But you look at, I remember I remember going on a call where I pull up, it was a protective order violation. And we pull up, and we approach, and there's a there's a guy on the ladder out in front of the house taking down his Christmas lights. And, you know, he kind of turns down on the ladder, and he's like, Hey. We're like, Hey. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and we kind of get into it. And before we're kind of, you know, he's starting to come down off the off the ladder with this look on his face that he he's got no idea what's going on. The wife steps out on the porch and goes, There he is. Arrest him. And he turns and looks at her, and he's like, what? <laughs> and she was like, "Yep, there he is. You have to arrest him. You have to book him." And he's like, "I, you called me and asked me to come take down the Christmas lights. I haven't stepped foot in the house. I haven't yeah. done it. But under the under the law, we had to arrest him. Yeah, you know, there was no if, ands, or buts." And I was like, "Dude, I."
0: Well, there's man, been there's been a lot of um, recent work in trying to unpack the unexpected consequences of those mandatory domestic laws, uh, arrest laws. And uh, it, like most things, that that reduction of const- of, of uh, discretion was done for good purposes. People had the right sort of goals in mind. They wanted to stop those bad cases that we all, are all aware of, where officers didn't make an arrest, um, it spun out of control later that night, and then uh, then everybody has the rightful question, like, well, why didn't you arrest, right? And so state legislatures across the country stepped in, Took away that discretion and made everything mandatory arrest if there was any kind of physical violence um, alleged. And unfortunately, since then, um, we've discovered that in in cases where uh, the the victim partner doesn't want the arrest to be made or doesn't want the prosecution to go ahead, there's an increased risk of re-offense uh, on the on in those cases. Um, it's a it's a small uh, in- risk. Increased risk, but it exists, right? And sure. so it's another thing that we need to take into account. You want you had something to say? On that I was message? just
2: going to say, uh, you know, and it goes down to again one more thing that that our law enforcement officers face when you talk about this domestic law. And I've done extensive work across the state with domestic violence training and stuff with Utah Domestic Violence Coalition, and, and I'm close with them and, mm-hmm. and a lead instructor with their group on a on a protocol, a lethality assessment protocol, but. We now have situations where you know that the common rhetoric is, "is well, this person died or was murdered because the police did nothing," you know, and, which I think is misleading as well. Right. It's the proper approach is, is how do we empower these people to make better decisions? I mean, we have some cultural issues or problems surrounding domestic violence, but yet again, cops are taking the brunt of it. And, and we try to throw law at it. We fix it with laws. And uh, it, it really, it, I deduce it to the same at every level that, you know, I think that there's a huge amount of accountability placed on law enforcement officers That that is troubling. And it, it's heavy. It's a heavy responsibility. And as we train new officers, we try to acclimate them to that To make good sound reasonable decisions but these are i mean these are challenging times and they're getting more and more challenging kind of like with what jack said the the book always policy had to do with well we don't want you to face accountability right like if you don't book this guy and then they have a fight later on and he kills her you're you're now you have blood on your hands but even outside the
1: even outside the domestic realm you know it's that I I know that when I sit down at a restaurant and I have a server come up and there's another server standing there I'm like, okay, this is a training going on. Yeah I'm gonna expect that my my order is probably not gonna be Right. Yeah, and and that's okay. I mean, I'm I'm taking that taking that into account and As society we need to have that same understanding of of newer officers newer officers are gonna make mistakes and what we what we need to do is say okay are they based on character or competence if it's competence we can train it if it's character those character mistakes are the are the big ones that that even as a profession we can't we can't go into and if you think about it in uh, in terms of a being bit, bitten by a rattlesnake you get it's more lethal for you to be bit by a, a young yep. rattlesnake than by an older one because there's that panic they don't know the proper, They can't control they can't can't control control the the amount amount of venom released. And stuff and so it's a it's very much an overage. And you you take that same concept into into policing. Our our experienced officers should be valued for the experience. Mm -hmm. And right now we're enacting policies, whether it's in the public or in the legislature or in the agencies, that is compelling those officers to to hit their hit that magic number and bounce. I was
2: gonna say the problem is we're losing our experienced officers. Exactly.
0: Well, and would, what, what and would I mean, you, you've done it for almost 20 years. You've seen your brother go through it for quite a few. Yeah, I he's know, 16, 16 years. years. Yeah. Would you tell your son or daughter to become a police officer right now?
2: Uh, I, if I'm being honest, which I always am, I'd try to be no, absolutely right. not. I have a son. I have three daughters and a son, and the, the daughters, of course, are not at all interested, but my son, who's eight, you know he looks to his dad and and mm-hmm. wants to do the things that I do uh, with hobbies and everything else and it, it frightens me to be honest with you which is which is sad but that is the truth it should um, frighten you that's if, where we are it yep. fright it frightens me to have him face that future and and he's not old enough right now at eight years old to be able to reason through that but as he gets older don't think that we won't be having those conversations um, which is too bad because. This is an honorable profession. Absolutely. This is a profession that has taken care of my family for 20 years and put food on the table. And I strongly believe that I have been a good influence in the community that I serve and that I have helped many, many people. Uh, I've made mistakes. Uh, We've all made mistakes. I've gotten better. I'm I'm still getting better. And this is... This is the frustrating part to me in all of this political spectrum that we have is we're we're losing sight of humanity. We just we're seeing we're we're marginalizing groups and, and I tell our cops the same thing, my friends, I said, don't marginalize ourselves in this fight. Mm-hmm. We we are part of the community. We exactly. are the community. Let's not marginalize right. it's not and not an make us it. Versus them. No, we don't want an us versus them mentality with anybody and and it's frustrating to me to see leaders wherever they are that are not engaging in an active effort to be part of that and that are marginalizing groups whether it be cops whether it be any social or political group law enforcement is law enforcement we we serve the community we protect the community we we want to do good well and 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 that fundamentally has not changed
1: and let's keep let's keep this in mind too when it comes to everything that's that's going on and all the chaos and anarchy out there, the design of that is to force us into our corners, right? Yes. The the design is for us to for us to rally, you know, the other side to rally, whatever other side to rally. Everybody just kind of kind of go to your corners, and then we can analyze better from the protections of our own uh, of our own corners. And part of that's by design. And every time we every time we get sucked into that, we're we're giving them what they what they want. And so so here's the thing. If you're a cop out there listening, okay? Do your job. Go do your job. If there are things that come up, this is why we got the best firm in the state, the region, the the nation in our corner. That's why it's there. We'll we'll fight those. We'll fight those fights. And we have fought them and we've and, we've and won we, them. We fought them, we've won, and we'll continue to. We'll we'll continue to do that heavy lifting on it. If you're a member of the community that is troubled by you know, what you've seen. There are agencies all over the place hiring. You know? Step up and if you can do it better and contribute something positive to the profession, by all means, step up and, and join. Okay? This isn't a we've got to change the dialogue a little bit to now now look, I'll tell you right now, there are police reforms that need to come and that need to happen. We don't have administrative due rights, due process rights. Okay? We need that. That is a big part of police reform. Okay. We need to take away some of the responsibilities that have been heaped on us. I mean, how many how many cops out there like going to the call of my 8-year-old won't get out of bed and go to school. You know, responding on calls like that that are non-criminal. It's ridiculous. You know, take those back, give them to the parents, make parents be parents. But we've got to but we've got to stop this. We got this stop this thing that we're the only ones that need to change. Okay, for those communities out there, that are that are doing this just like we need to do a better job of policing our own. Those communities need to do a better job of, of policing their own. There are some things that we just can't tolerate in society. And no matter no matter what, I I'm getting sick and tired of the of the debate of these calls of these of these rioters that that disregard the law and disregard the the communities and everything, saying that police need to change. And I'm like, that's that's just completely
2: ignorant well, of everything well, and it's, and, then and I, it's
1: getting really frustrating I, for cops out there it's getting frustrating for families it's getting Well what frustrating about for what about bankers? for the
2: private citizens that have exactly. had their, their property damaged i mean i'm driving through the area where i patrol last week and uh, you know i see some graffiti acab all cops are bastards Is oh, okay. and then and then there's Is that the, what that means i was wondering what A- that means. and then I there's it was uh, all cops are beautiful I yeah mean, well, actually yeah yeah Damn. so and then, and then even a few more, you know, fuck the police. And I'm looking at these walls and I'm like, okay, well, I'm not necessarily thinking about what's on the wall. I'm thinking about whose property is that? Right. Who, who's going to clean that up? Who's going to pay for that? And there are lots of victims in the middle of this that really are, are being wrapped into it without any choice by this lawlessness. And, and you're right, we can't tolerate it. It, it. There's no middle ground. You can't allow people to damage private property. You know, we, we that's a dangerous... It's dangerous ground to, to tread on, to tolerate it. And, and it's frustrating can, to you, see what's happened. You
0: can't have a functioning economy or democracy when private citizens don't have trust that when they wake up tomorrow their property will still be theirs and undamaged and well if it and is damaged
2: I, that they have the and the, i they think have about it, to pursue it and i think about it i think about do our cops face face the backlash of that because they may view it as well geez somebody's spray painting my wall and nobody was out here patrolling mm-hmm. what are you doing you know because maybe they don't have perspective that the call screen was full of those domestic calls that Brett talks about the, or
1: the, part of it is that the district attorney is going to dismiss those things because they're exercising well, the First Amendment right on and everything. Else's property.
2: There's an opportunity cost here too that people need to realize. The public needs to realize for for what we demand of our cops is fine. You know, you you, you can ask, you can ask whatever, but it's going to come with a cost. For example, if we have large spread gatherings in Salt Lake County at any particular city where we have a group meeting and we have to call in agency support from all other agencies right what is not happening there folks is we are not getting policing in those communities now now we have uh, the agencies that are there helping out their fellow law enforcement officers to deal with a very challenging situation are leaving their communities behind and that's a part that we don't talk about that's a part i haven't seen on the news well you know well what, you've, what,
0: you've, if you've been listening to our podcast we've hit it several yeah, times yeah what what times. about
2: you know what about these cities that now have zero cops in them because right. everybody's no, down tell dealing you with the situation it's already know?
3: happening i mean you're seeing you know this call to defund the police um, and and interestingly you know it's the the noisy 3% you know that's that's saying this these anarchists these marxists these these anti-american voices that are seeking to you know be divisive divisive and to tear down our institutions, you know, and not in a good way, um, despite what, you know, they say they're about, they're, they're really about destroying uh, everything we know, and uh, the freedoms that we hold dear. And the result, you know, you go into some of these communities, and these inner city folks, you know, that are, that are living in some of the most dangerous communities in this nation, they do not want the police defunded. The the average American living in you know I'll just call it what it is a, a ghetto uh, a very you know uh, a difficult place to grow up high crime you know um, in a normal year and now you defund the police ask those people if they want police presence and what you're hearing overwhelmingly is that they do and yeah. yet we're seeing places like New York where the murder rate uh, just in these recent weeks has gone up over a hundred and fifty percent year over year from. From last year. That is not trending in a direction that's going to do anything no. other than cost lives.
2: Especially when we have a track rest record of, you know, you take a, a city like New York City, great city, they they have taken measures over the last two decades to reduce that crime rate and it's been very effective and that has been through community policing absolutely and now we we see community policing going by the wayside because of the tension and things like that we're we're moving in the wrong direction here and it's easy to see but you know i I just think about it how's atlanta feeling right now Mm -hmm. you know with their with the issues that they've had going on with the controversy surrounding the shooting, again, what we just spoke of—context, due process—cast by the wayside,
3: charging without an investigative quick, report, quick, I mean, quick, judgment. unbelievable. Yeah, and quick, what's going to happen? Judgment, what's going mean, to happen
0: in a year when that case? These are, it, these are, uh, those guys are getting acquitted. Come on,
2: let's be honest. This They're getting is what acquitted. we're up against, though. I mean, this is what we're up against, and it's it's super important that. Uh, the officers that are working, that you stay, you stay vigilant. Uh, you keep doing your job. You keep, you keep providing professional, top-notch quality policing, no matter what. I mean, I, I would tell our, I would tell our members turn the news off. Yeah. Turn the helps. news off. Stop reading Facebook. Uh, we we talked about social media extensively, you know, last episode, and in it's it. It really, if you, if you just stop watching that and you go do your job, I think that you'll find that the vast majority of the public, they appreciate you. They want you there. I, uh,
0: the numbers are there, too. The
2: last two times that I have gone to, to dinner or lunch to go grab my sandwiches, I've worked, I, I have had multiple people both times come up and offer to pay for my lunch. Good. That's telling. Uh, that's telling i'm at a drive-through getting a drink and somebody pays for it in front of me i mean it's i have a that's that that's going on every day if i'm seeing that our officers are seeing that and And normal people don't we need to emphasize that we need to remember that because the voice against that is super loud right now but i don't think that it represents a majority it doesn't it does does not and normal people do
0: not uh get along with the messaging coming out of the protests um, I was actually at the clinic a couple weeks ago and the nurse there knows what I do and she says, she says, we're not really going to lose our police, are we? Like that was what she was hearing as, as somebody who she said, you know, she doesn't follow the news. She had just heard this uh, abolish the police sentiment and was really concerned about that. They, the national surveys around this are very, very clear. It doesn't matter your race. The approval and desire for more officers in the neighborhood
3: runs around eighty percent. Eighty percent, and you know what's interesting about that? It's eighty percent among whites. It's eighty-one percent among blacks. That's those are the real numbers. That's what the average American person wants. They want to feel safe. Right. And we
0: need to do what. Going back to something you had said about ten minutes ago that really caught my attention is, um, I often think about how difficult it must be from outside the profession to judge how often shootings are occurring, right? If you go back to, the, to the, around the time of the telegraph and big daily newspapers becoming a thing um, in the world, people got really scared because there was a sudden, from their viewpoint, resurgence of volcanoes
2: hmm. in the world.
0: And, and people became extraordinarily concerned that volcanoes were suddenly erupting all the time, whereas before it would be something like you had you only hear about every 100 years. Well, what was really happening? What was really happening is that the news was reporting volcanoes into a populace that wasn't used to hearing about volcanoes yeah. because they'd never had access to that information. And when you talk about body cameras, prior to body cameras, people's conceptions of what a police shooting looked like- Were different. Was Hollywood based, if anything. Right. And so all of a sudden they're confronted and now around 60 to 68% of, uh, departments in the U S have body cameras. Um, and so you're seeing out of the thousand shootings a year, you're seeing probably on average around 680 body camera video shootings a year. Um, to, if you go from zero to 680, it, in a nation, even in a nation of three hundred and
2: thirty million people, it feels like a lot. And and you have no context on any of those shootings. and worse, you have We're no seeing context.
3: courts uh, starting to say things like, "Well, because there's no body cam to validate right. the yeah. statements of the officer, it calls into question the statements of the officer." When did that happen? Well, when was our word you no know, longer any good? The and, thing, and the
2: thing, the thing that's bullshit about that to begin with. It, you know, and pardon my language, but. <laughs> departments it's framed as if departments don't want to have body cameras and that's viewed as a level of corruption which could not be further from the truth The the thing that the public doesn't understand is body cameras are expensive and the cameras themselves are not where the expense is it's in the storage i mean i work for a large agency here in the in the county and we don't have 100% of our officers wearing body cameras, and it has everything to do with cost. budget. Yeah. It has nothing to it's do with not wanting expensive. to have them. It, it, our administration, our leaders would want nothing more, I believe, than for every one of our officers to be equipped with a body camera. But that comes at a cost. You know That, that, that has to be funded somewhere, and it's an issue. And then we deal with these smaller or rural agencies that are across our state. Right. Do they have the budget for that? Do the taxpayers want to? You know, do they want to pay more into the police budget? And here we're talking about defunding. You know, well, it's it's not uh, even—it's not
0: even about. It's it's ironic. It's not only restricted to body cameras. If you think about it, in your career, and I I don't want to put you on the spot but I'll put, I'll put the question out there. I know, I don't think you've been involved in a, in a shooting.
2: I have not, 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 not directly where I have right. been the person pulling the trigger. I've been on several where They're very I've been rare. They're, they're, they're very they're rare. They are rare.
0: But how many times in your career did you use your weapon as a way to de-escalate or, or were you involved in situations where legally it would have been possible for that person to be shot?
2: You know, I, I just had this discussion with a good friend of mine and, uh, he, he framed it as this way, and it, very disappointing, I might say, very disappointing conversation for me with the mm-hmm. person I have I've viewed as having better perspective, but he offered it as that police are just looking for reasons to shoot, and right. I told him that. I, I can't even honestly—I It's hard. I can't even count how many times I could have used lethal force in my career and been justified, in my opinion, under the law, where I have not done so, and it has been the right call— and that we're back to the again the human element where we can't have robots doing this job. We would actually have we'd have poorer performance than we have now. Right. We need that human instinct. It's so, an awful feeling when you're facing down a suspect and and pulling slack out of the trigger. It's an awful feeling, and yeah. people don't understand that. They don't know that. And I, I had a kid in particular one day that pulled a gun on me and. He, he caught me in a moment. I was not ready, folks. I mean, that's just what happened. I had my taser out. He uh, he pulled the gun on me, and I saw what was happening. And I ta- I, I had my taser in my left hand. I'm right-handed. I uh, I tased him, and luckily that worked, and he went down to the ground. and. But I'm telling you right now, if I'd have had the other weapon in my hand, if I'd have had that other gun in my hand, I, I would have shot and killed that kid. Right. He was 18 years old. He was having a bad day. Uh, he he was making terrible decisions at the moment and worse yet is his dad sat and watched the entire encounter unfold and i think I thank the good lord every day that I did not take that young man's life that I had the taser out in my left hand and that came with extreme risk to me as he pulled the gun that's a prime example of, of you know a de-escalation thing but uh, how many news stories did they write about zero (laughs) that's Uh, amazing right you know it is amazing but that and that story by the way is not unique no it it is not unique that there are officers every day that face down situations that are not pulling the trigger and to to see news that says that it's different than that Super. It it hurts my heart to be honest with you. It's disheartening.
0: Uh, I I came out of my shooting in 2014, and I had this weird and silly. It was, in retrospect, it was a bad goal. But I had a goal of not being in a shooting for one year, and one year to the day of that shooting in 2015, I was on a hostage situation where um, some friends of yours and mine. We ended up breaching a door on a young man who had held his mom hostage at, at uh, knife point. And as we made, as we crossed that door and made contact, I had every legal opportunity to shoot that young man in the head. Um, and I didn't. And I was, and I remember coming down the stairs and uh, a now sergeant for your agency was like, you all right? He could see it in my face. And I was just like, I just did not, I could not. Bring myself to do it. I just did not want to do it.
2: Yeah,
3: and it was you know uh, uh,
2: those are those are the real moments. The
3: that They don't see that. The job became very real for me going through that type of experience. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I became a law enforcement officer much older because I you know was already an attorney. Uh, I was in my late thirties. I think, well, thirty seven ish, going through police academy. And, you know, had a perspective on life and a career and, you know, going into policing, I think at that age, it, it, it felt very much like a project, like, you know, <laughs> I'm going yeah. to see what this is all about. But the job became real uh, the day that I was or the evening that I was faced with a scenario like the one, you know, you guys are, are, are describing. And without going into to too much detail, again, had every legal right to end this young man's life, you know, he had a uh, a rifle. Um, it looked like an AK-47, and you know, he was approaching a window where we were, and not obeying commands. And um, you know, you, you mentioned taking up slack out of your trigger pull, and you know, that's where mm-hmm. I was. I was stepping and shooting. And um did not fire that weapon because things changed rapidly at a point where it was almost you know too late to go back. but thankfully, you know he made the decision. He saw us uh, finally, you know, it was it was dark, but he saw us and decided to drop that weapon. And I look back at that and you know in and, and being able to, assess that this was not what I thought it was and and not in his life man I empathized immediately with you know the thousands upon thousands of officers who every day find themselves in this situation and and some of them make the decision rightfully make the decision to have to end somebody's life and then have to live with that but again you know we're seeing jurisdictions California in particular who, you know, they're, they're taking away uh, that those aspects of the law that give cops the latitude to make decisions the way we make decisions, namely, um, you know, the reasonableness uh, aspect. that has been around since the beginning of the law. Reasonableness in the law is the cornerstone, the, the cornerstone of, of the law, you know, what, what is reasonable? Um, can be evaluated in the light of day, and now they're saying things like necessary. Mm-hmm. Well, who gets to decide what's necessary, and who's in the best position to determine what's necessary, and is it not the officer who's there in the moment? Well,
2: and let's be honest. I mean, the reasonableness of that can change as well. I mean, was the what was the reasonableness of it in the moment when it happened versus when we are Monday morning quarterbacking these cases after the fact when we are In an air-conditioned room with a team of experts studying body cameras and saying oh well this officer could have done that or could have done this and again it comes Mm -hmm. back to for me it's a big thing it's context but you know I I admire those every day that put on the uniform that go out that are willing to fight and uh, and make those decisions and I don't know cops that want to get in shootings no I don't I've not known them my entire career, and so when I hear that being portrayed in any sense, it's disheartening. People who because say that not, don't know cops. It's That's not a good signal. It's just not accurate from right. my perspective, and I believe that I have a decent perspective doing this for 20 years, um, for multiple agencies. Now, I've never met. Uh, Officers that are being described right now today, I've I've not met them. I don't know who they are. We,
3: you know, some of that, JC, as you say it, you know, some of that. I think um, the way that we use language and the way that we choose, you know, the words to describe scenarios, we have to be careful because as I as I hear you say that, I I agree with you, but I also know from you know a a tactical perspective, we train in a way to expect. Yes. to have to shoot somebody absolutely and so to to parse that out it's not say, it's not saying we want no to be in that situation no. but if we're going to stay alive we have to expand i see it the okay. bad guy or, or
2: if we have to keep others alive i mean That's let's right. let's be honest it's a with performance, you and, the, and it, the law the law outlines that i mean you do not allow somebody else to take a life when you can prevent that and you make that commitment when you sign on to be a cop And I I have friends that ask me that, well, could you shoot somebody? Well, absolutely. That doesn't mean I want to. But can I? I can, and I could be very efficient and very effective in doing so. I I pray I don't encounter that, so I don't have to deal with it personally, and those affected don't have to deal with it personally. But every day I go to work, there's that inherent risk that I am willing to take and that I have taken every day for the last almost 20 years. And that risk
3: is what makes you different than the common citizen that's going to his or her dental practice. And this is what I wish Sim would appreciate because, you know, Mr. Gill, you know, he's always saying, well, you know, cops are no different than other citizens when it comes to the law. Well, okay, except that the all-powerful state has given these young men and women the weapons of war and sent them into the streets to fight evil. That's what we ask of these law enforcement officers. And if we're going to take things away from them, like, qualified immunity or you know we're going to say we're going to second guess them and we're going to suggest that you know because it wasn't necessary it also wasn't reasonable i mean these things are going to not only get law enforcement officers killed it's going to drive crime up and that is going to be the natural dissolution of our communities if people like Sim Gill were to have their way.
0: Well, and and I wanna tie back to what both of you said because I think you you bring up a good point. I would just add that when officers use that kind of language you were discussing about being ready to use lethal force or being willing to use lethal force, it's also that same language is invoking a hope that they perform as they are expected to perform, Right. right? And that when that day comes, them because it will come like there are going to be if you enter into a law enforcement career there will be hard days and you will be faced especially as a patrol officer you will be faced with critical rapid chaotic fluid dynamic situations where the right there is no right answer there's only action that needs to be taken now and I, What I hear when officers are talking about that is the hope that they, like the people they've seen go before them, will perform admirably and respectably, and that they will be seen as performing their duty as they were trained and expected to do. And that's what I hear. I, I understand from outside policing how it can sound. Um, a lot of times I'm needing, I, you know, my role is sometimes to translate that for audiences that have never thought about their lives being violently threatened or having to take violent action, who the last time they thought about violence was in kindergarten when they were taught it doesn't solve anything, right? And we take those same people from the community and we send them through the policing academy and we send them through field training and, uh, or, uh, uh, program and then we put them out on the street and we teach them that in fact violence does solve violent problems very well in the moment. It doesn't provide long-term answers. But it, it like it's, it's it, saved, it
3: saves you and it saves your buddies, and yeah. it saves
0: the community, yeah. and it's necessary. It is necessary at times. times. Yes. No. There, you cannot have a functioning democracy without somebody retaining the right to uh, invoke violence and in protection of the community and its members, and that's the role of police. So, JC, your uh, your joining us has been a really uh, a good thing. I really appreciate your voice. I appreciate your experience and I appreciate what you're doing for the young men and women under your command who are coming into a a difficult profession. Um, Please pass on my ultimate respect for them. Um, I love them dearly, even if I've never met them. I see them when they are showing up on that domestic where there is no easy answer and you're not right there with them to make the right decision for them, but you've provided them with the right training to make the right decision. And I see you standing behind them. Um, even if you're not on scene ready to defend them even if things go wrong because they were trying to do the right thing and they did it as they were trained and expected to do.
2: Thank, thank you and I, uh, I am certainly appreciative of, of the law firm and, and this organization and how how much they are fighting for the rights of our officers and for due process and, and just, to be, just to be seen in, yeah. the, in the proper context but it's been an honor. Thank you.
0: You're welcome and thank you. Uh, Rawson, Jex isn't here, so as you know, I will never compliment him to his face, (laughs) but now that he's not here, I would like uh, to uh, extend a bit of admiration to Brent Jex for his work over the last couple decades in building this organization, in representing officers' voices when it's been a very unpopular thing to do, and to you for building the world's finest police legal defense firm um, and being there sleeping on floors when it was necessary. Every one of those Oh, a ton of gray hairs in your beard, earned <laughs> in defense of an officer somewhere. I thought it looked pretty brown. Well, man. it I looks mean, good I, now, but it's there's it's a whole
3: section in. of my beard devoted to Kevin Salmon. So he's, God bless him. He's yeah. out there. Thanks, yeah. Kevin. And uh, I thank you to
0: the Podmill and Spencer Wright for hosting uh, our organization over the last uh, now eighteen or so episodes. Uh, It's been an absolute delight to get in here and talk to our members and to uh, other supporters of the law enforcement community. Uh, My name's Ian Adams. I'm your executive director. Thanks for listening to us. I see you and we'll see you next time.